You're listening to the James Faith in Jesus Work Series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. James chapter 3. We'll be in James chapter 4 tonight, but I think we'll start our first few, couple verses in James 3. <clears throat> a little while ago, Tara and I went through the process of becoming or getting our house ready to be foster parents or adoptive parents, and I, that was a long process, a lot, lot longer than I expected. And one of the things that we needed to do, because we are a little bit out in the country and we have a well, is we had to get our well tested. They needed to make sure that our well was not unclean, that it was not contaminated. So I went and I grabbed a, a bottle of water and I filled it up with a tap and I, and I took it in and had it tested. And the first time it came back and it failed. Uh-oh, <laughs> how long has it been like this? But she said, well, sometimes what happens is you put it in the vessel and the vessel is already unclean and it's already got something in it. And so just try, make sure you have a clean vessel and, and make sure that you, you know, get it and bring it in again. And, and if it fails the second time, then we'll know that there's a real problem. And so we did that. We went back and we found out that, in fact, our water is clean. It, we're okay. But after the first time, I had this thought. Well, maybe I just got it from the wrong tap. That's kind of a foolish thought, right? Um, because the problem, if it, there was a problem, probably wouldn't be in the tap. It wouldn't be in the pipes. It'd be in the source. It'd be in the well. And we all recognize that sources are important. And so tonight, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be delving into this idea of the source of our conflicts. When we go to the doctor, we know that we don't want to go to the doctor and just have the doctor treat our symptoms, right? I mean, if there was a pill that could make that symptom go away, you might want to take it, but you wouldn't be satisfied if the doctor said, okay, well, this is going to make the symptom go away, but, but the, the you know, downside is your problem is going to get worse and worse and worse. Just the symptom is going to go away. Well, that wouldn't feel good because we know that the actual issue of the problem is not getting any better. And eventually, you won't be able to make the symptoms go away. Eventually, tragedy will result. If that's true of our physical health, how much more is it true of our spiritual and emotional health? We see actions, we see behavior, and sometimes we can even see attitudes. And I think that mothers are very good at this. And So when we look at other people, we can see what they're doing. And we can assess some of the symptoms, right? But we don't have the ability to go in ourselves beyond that, right? We're limited in our ability to diagnose another person. All we see is actions, behavior, maybe attitudes. But we do realize that actions and behavior that are problematic reveal a deeper problem. That we wouldn't just look at someone who's got all of these problems in their actions and attitudes and say, well, probably everything else is perfect. Their heart is probably perfect and pure and right, and they're just unfortunately, you know, accidentally doing all these bad things. We would realize that there is a deeper problem. Anyone who doubts the, the depravity of mankind just needs to spend some time with the toddler. 
You take two toddlers and you put them in a room full of toys. You know which, to which toy every toddler is going to want? The one in the other person's hands. Every single time. You will find in a room full of toddlers, toy stealing, toy hoarding, toy defending, you'll find them finding ways to manipulate those who are watching them. Right? So either they're going to cry or they're going to make up some kind of story that makes them the hero and the other person the villain. You will find that they are, at heart, selfish. And we've all seen the occasion where a toddler loses his cool or her cool, where, where they just they lose it. They, they have a temper tantrum, right? Now, temper tantrums are, they can be very embarrassing if you're the parents. They're sometimes a little bit funny when you're not the parents. Um, you feel a little bit good like, ah, they do it too, right? It's not just mine. But could you imagine if that toddler was old enough to have the strength to actually do violence in one of those temper tantrums? I mean, they've lost all cool. There's nothing that can console them. They're lashing out in every way that their little bodies possibly can. They're screaming, they're punching, they're hitting, they're scratching, they're doing whatever they can. Thankfully for us, they're still really little, and you can kind of just like hold them down until it's done. But can you imagine if they were a man having a tantrum like that, what kind of violence they could do? You watch a toddler, and you know that there is something wrong in their hearts. Why? Because you can see the behavior. You can see the actions. And they do re reveal a problem with the source. Uh, this behavior is not unique to any one problem child. It is common. It reveals that there's a source of evil that comes from within. John MacArthur said, said this. He said, and, and I hope he didn't visit people in the hospital and say this after they had their baby, but this is what he said. He said, your child came into the world with an insatiable faculty for evil. Even before birth, your baby's little heart was already programmed for sin and selfishness. The inclination toward depravity is such that, given free reign, every baby has the potential to become a monster. And that's very true. So how do we fix the problem? What do we do? When we look at our world today, we, have, we see the problem all over the place. It's ubiquitous. And we also see many people trying to come up with solutions to this problem. So we have the behavior-focused solution. Let's just see every problem behavior and try and fix the behaviors one at a time. But parents, if you ever are able to fix one of your child's problem behaviors, what happens the next day? <laughs> a new one, Right? doesn't last long. They've just moved on to a different thing. Here's the environmentally focused approach, where all we have to do with little Johnny is we have to put him in the right circumstances. We have to put him with the right toys. We have to put him with the right people. And if we can control his environment and his circumstances and how everybody in the world always treats him, make sure it's always right and fair and to Johnny's liking, then everything will be okay. <laughs> the problem is that's not possible. And it doesn't even solve the problem. Because kids, if they're in a world full of toys, will want the toy that they don't have. They're never satisfied, right? Because all of us have an insatiable appetite in our flesh. There is also the self-esteem-focused approach. That all we need to do is build little Johnny's self-esteem. Make sure he knows he's comfortable and confident and, and liked and loved and all those things. And 
that the, the beauty and the inner goodness in Johnny will, will come out. It'll just come from within him because we've given him what he needs to flourish as an individual. But if you take a little child and you tell them every day how wonderful they are and how loved they are and how awesome they are and how great they are and all those things, what happens with that child? They become narcissistic. The world is about them. Everybody exists to serve them. They're the awesome that is the world. And so it it doesn't work. We see so many different ideas in society, and we have to be honest, they're failing. They're not working. It's not like it's easier to raise kids and we've we've figured it out. I know some people who are um, psychologists, child psychologists. So you'd presume they would know a little bit about raising children. They have the worst children. It's... There's no answer. The world doesn't provide us this answer. And so the final approach is the heart-focused approach. And here in James chapter 4, James puts on his psychologist's cap and helps us to understand the source of the conflicts within each of our lives. It starts when we're kids, but it doesn't go away. As we grow older, we learn how to be socially acceptable in our tantrums. We learn how to, that, that some things are just no-nos when it comes to you being selfish. But it's not that the problem of selfishness goes away. It's not the problem of anger just goes away. Right? We don't, we're not just like overcoming all of these obstacles. We're just learning how to better deal with them. But the problem within is still there. So we might have learned how to, to uh, treat a few of the symptoms. But we haven't learned to fix the problem. And so James helps us with that. I want to um, begin reading in James chapter 3 because I think it's helpful to um, remember the note that James left us on at the end of chapter 3. He said in verse 17, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. He says there is wisdom from above, and this wisdom demonstrates itself in our lives, in how we act, in how we live, in how we treat people, in our attitudes, in our behaviors. He says it is pure, it is peaceful, it is gentle, it is reasonable, it is merciful, it is good, it is authentic, it is genuine. And then he says when you sow in peace, you will reap a harvest of righteousness. And this text here is a breath of fresh air for those of us who feel like we're just, we're never going to get there. That, that we've got this weight of our depravity weighing heavily on us that change is not even possible. And James says there is wisdom from above and that change is possible and that God through Christ can make that change happen in even your life. This is good news for us. But it happens only when we pursue godly wisdom by faith. And so now James is going to help us to see the other side of the equation. What happens when we ignore God's wisdom and allow ourselves to pursue whatever our hearts desire, whatever our flesh desires? And so in verse 1 to 2 of James chapter 4, we'll see the problem defined. In verses 3 to 4, we'll see the failed solutions. In verses 5 and 6, we'll see the only hope. Let's look at James chapter 4, verse 1. James says, 
From whence comes wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members. He says, where does wars, which is warfare, it's, it's talking about the whole war that's happening, come? And where does the fightings or the battles come? He wants us to know that, first of all, he's looking at the big picture all of the conflict in our lives, why is, it, why is there that all of us experience this conflict in our relationships with people? Why do we all struggle in these areas? And, and, and not just like, okay, only big picture. Now let's step in and see. And why do we have this specific battle that you're thinking about? Why did you have that fight this afternoon? Why are you struggling with this person right now? So he's, he's saying, where does that come from? Like, why does that happen? Why isn't it that after living for a few years, we can figure out how to have relationships properly? Isn't it true that we can figure out most other things? Like, I am always amazed at technology. How is it that I can be speaking right now, and there's a computer back there without any cords or anything that's recording everything that, that I'm saying? I mean, that, like, we, this, that's t- chip, the tip of the iceberg, right? Everything that happens today is incredible. We have so much we've figured out. And every single person on this earth struggles to have good relationships. It's not easy. Why is that? Well, he's asking the question. He wants us to start thinking. And James is really smart here. He's using the Socratic method. He knows that if you want people to actually like dialogue well and communicate well, then you have to ask questions. Because if, when you ask questions, they start thinking about the answers. And if you can figure out a way to take a person and lead them to the right answer where they feel like they figured it out, then you've actually accomplished something. What happens so often is when we're having a problem with people or we see a problem in somebody else's life, we want to just tell them what's wrong. Yeah, I'm guilty of this all the time. Let me tell you how I can fix your life. Nobody ever listens to that. How many times have you spoken to someone and told them what was wrong with their life and been rejected completely? Like they, want, they didn't want to hear what you had to say. They didn't do anything you said to do. But James is smart. And he knows that if he starts asking questions, maybe we'll start thinking, hey, everyone, why is it that you struggle in your relationships? Where does that conflict come from? Have you ever thought of that? Let's think about it together. He goes on. He asks another question. He says, do they not come from the lusts that war in your members? Is it possible that all of that conflict comes from the lusts that you have inside of you that are at war? That that you are lusting, that your flesh is desiring something, and that the reason for the conflict is because your flesh is not always getting what it wants to get. See, our flesh is constantly fighting against us. We often think about where evil comes from, and, and the first answer is always the devil, and the second answer is like, well, the, the Hollywood. I mean, the world is evil, right? There's a lot of evil stuff that happens out there. But we rarely go to our hearts first. And yet, if we understand this correctly, we understand that it's the evil within us that responds to the evil outside. And if we didn't have evil within us, then that would have no effect on us. And what could the devil do? The devil's more than happy to be our weapons supplier in this fight. He's happy to to provide artillery that's going to fight against us and and fight against the spirit inside of us. But he can't do it unless we allow him to. 
And so our flesh here is the number one enemy. And he says, is it possible that sometimes you're in conflict because you're not getting what your flesh wants? That your flesh has an idea or a a desire and that the conflict that you're experiencing with another believer, another person, your child, your spouse, whoever it may be, is partially because your flesh is unsatisfied. Your flesh desires something else. He goes on in verse 2. He says, you lust and you have not. You kill and you desire to have but cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and you receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. James here says a lot, but I want to to boil it down quickly. He says you lust, but you're not getting what you want. So you kill to obtain what you want. Now, granted, this is a very extreme example, but let's think about what he's saying. He's saying you lust. Your your heart, your flesh wants something, and you desire to have it, and you're even willing to kill to have it. Now, in extreme examples, this is true. Sometimes people do kill people because they don't get what they want. Okay? That, would be, that would be the motivation. They're not happy. Their flesh is unsatisfied. But if we just step that example back a little bit and say, well, why is it that you sinned? Why is it that you lied? Why is it that you said something critical about that person? Why is it that you, you hurt them? Why is it that you did that mean thing or whatever it was? Why is it that you sinned in that way? Maybe it's because... You were lusting and you couldn't have, and you desired to have. And so in your desire to have something, you were willing to sin to get it. I think that's what he's trying to tell us, that that this killing, this violence, or this sin is a result of us lusting and not being able to get what we want. And so you desire to have, but you cannot obtain. He says you fight and you war, yet you have not, because you ask not. So we are in our lives in this permanent fight, this this ongoing battle, this war, to get what we want. That is the base state of all mankind. We want to get what we want. And he says, you ask, or you, you don't have, because you don't ask. Now this is really interesting. Because it's almost like at this point, he's, he's giving us a, a window into the fact that there is a solution. That there, that there is a way of gaining the satisfaction that our hearts desire. Because isn't it interesting that if we were just products of human evolution, why is it that we all have these desires in our heart that are never fulfilled? Why is that? Why is it that we have insatiable appetites? Why is it that when we we sin, we want to sin more and more and that we never are satisfied? Those things are are kind of strange, I think, in an evolutionary model. But they make a lot of sense when you're talking about the Bible and what the Bible says about mankind. One of the things that I think is so incredible about the Bible is its ability to diagnose our hearts. Its ability to see why we do what we do. What's behind your actions? And that's exactly what he's saying here. And he's saying part of the problem is maybe you're not asking. Maybe there is a way of you being satisfied, but you're not asking. And he clarifies that in verse 3. He says, you ask and you receive not because you ask amiss that you consume it upon your own lust. So he wants to make clear that this is not just like, okay, God, I want, I, you know, I want this sinful thing, and so I'm just going to ask you and you're going to give it to me. He said, no, you, 
Sometimes you, if you ask and you're asking for selfish motives, God's not going to give you that. Okay? Isn't it true that sometimes when we pray, the vast majority of our prayer could be classified as self-focused? That a lot of what we pray about is circumstances in our own lives. And I notice this partially because I get the opportunity every night to pray with our kids. And and so when you're praying with children, a lot of times you just see what what naturally comes out of them when they pray. They, They haven't been like, schooled on prayer. They don't know what's right and what's wrong. And so what naturally often comes out of mankind is to pray for their circumstances. Now, I'm actually oftentimes um, encouraged by other things they pray about that are really good and helpful. But a lot of it is just my day, what's going to happen tomorrow, better day than today. You know, like, I just want my life to be a little bit better. I feel like that probably characterizes a lot of our prayers. Sometimes we pray for selfish motives. Now, I'm not saying don't go to God with anything. You can go to God with with anything. But I also think that here he's saying that there's a way of praying that is selfish, and those prayers won't be answered. Those aren't the things that God wants to hear from us. It's not about consuming what we want based on our own lusts. And so he's saying there is potentially a way to satisfaction. And it's like we're at this fork in the road where all of our lives, we've been going this direction, thinking that if, if I am somehow able to fulfill my flesh, I will achieve satisfaction. I will be happy. I will have joy. And he's backing up and he's saying, listen, guys, you're going, you're going about it the wrong way. Because your whole life, you're fighting and you're warring and you're never, you're never really satisfied with what you want. And maybe it's because you're going about the wrong way, you're not asking. But he's pulling back even farther and saying, and maybe when you're asking, you're asking for the wrong thing. Maybe it's not just your your method that needs to change. Maybe what needs to change is your direction entirely. Maybe there's something else that's designed to bring you joy that you're not pursuing properly yet. And the reason you're not pursuing that thing properly, that thing properly, is because you're still pursuing that thing. And you can't be going two directions at once. And so he says in verse 4, you adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Why does he call them adulterers and adulteresses? That's kind of weird. Like, why does that all of a sudden seem to be thrown in here? Well, think about it. What is an adulterer? Somebody who is unfaithful to their spouse, to the person they've They've covenanted together with. And so this is not just a matter of like fornication. This is a matter of they're not being faithful. And James is using this as an example of what we do to God often. We say, I want my joy here. And sometimes we even ask, God, give me this. But what we're doing is we're being unfaithful to him. And James is trying to point us in a different direction. Don't be an adulteress or adulterer or adulteress. Go the different direction. Don't you realize that friendship with the world, and and that's fondness for the world, or love for worldly things that are against God, that those things put you at enmity with God, in opposition to God, hostility toward God. The result is, you are here at war within, and in this world, maybe even unwittingly, you're in opposition with God. When you love the things that God hates, you and God are not okay. 
And if we were to take what he's saying here and apply it to another relationship, I think it wouldn't make a lot of sense to us. If I had a passion, I mean, I loved something that Tara absolutely hated. And so every day I was bringing that thing, we'll just call it red roses, because I thought she loved red roses. You might know the story. I don't know. Anyways, I didn't find out she didn't until after we were engaged. So let's say, let's say that, that Tara had some crazy, weird hatred toward red roses. And every day I was trying to grow them, and I was bringing them into the house, and I was getting her to smell them, and I was just like, I was all about red roses all the time. You would clearly know that I'm not showing love to Tara. I can't, I can't be loving the thing that Tara hates and at the same time say that I love Tara. Those things just don't coincide. And so when we're with God and we're saying, oh God, I love you, I love you, let me come to church and praise you, and I'm going to sing I Surrender All, and I'm going to sing all these songs about you being my all in all, and then I'm going to go and spend the rest of my week loving all the things that you hate. You can see why God say, you're an adulterer. You're an adulteress. You've made this covenant with me, but you're not... You're not being faithful to that because you're loving all the things you're not supposed to love. And if we go back to the story of Hosea and Gomer, that, that's the exa- exact example that God gave. Gomer was unfaithful to Hosea, just like Israel was unfaithful to God, just like sometimes we are unfaithful to God. And so he says in verse number five, do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy. Do you think that, that God doesn't care? Do you think he's apathetic toward the things that you love? Do you think that he's, he's just mildly interested in what you're doing for the rest of the week and all he cares about is, you know, what you do on Sunday, where you worship, what? No, he doesn't care. No, no he, he does care. <laughs> he does care, right? And, and like this, scene, this, is, this is so abundantly obvious when we think about it, but often we act the other way. He is interested in us. And this is actually an encouraging text. Sometimes we see the truths and we know they're glorious, but we don't personalize them. Right? What it's saying is, don't you think that the scripture says in vain that the spirit that dwells in you lusts to envy? And the, the idea of lust to envy is yearns jealously. So don't, don't you realize that the spirit that dwells in you yearns jealously over your life? That he's jealous of the things that that you love. He's jealous of your affections. He's jealous of your time. That he's not just okay with sitting back and be like, well, do whatever you want. No, he's like, you're mine. I bought you with a price. You, I mean, you should be living your life serving righteousness and not serving the sin that I saved you from. He's jealously yearning over you and your life. Romans chapter 6, verse 6, all the way to 8 goes into this topic, this idea, in great detail. We are now God's servants. We belong to him. So we should be servants of what is good and right. How dare we continue to feed our sinful flesh as though we are still in bondage to it when we have now been freed by God's grace? There's a lot of times when I self-assess that I feel kind of pathetic feel like I should be further along. I feel like 
It's crazy that I know all that I know about God's word and about truth and about all these things, and that I still struggle with the basics of what I've been called to do. That being what you're supposed to be seems so much harder than talking about it. I can get up here and tell you quite often, I'm privileged to have an opportunity to preach. But it seems like so often I feel I just don't get there. I just don't measure up like I should. And here, I'm reminded that the Spirit of God dwells inside of me and that he jealously yearns over my life. And so it's not just okay for me to put up my hands and say, well, so be it. This is just who I am. It's not okay for me to live my entire life pursuing my flesh and what I want and, and my desires and just whatever, whatever happens, happens. The Spirit of God is living inside of me. He's yearning jealously over my life. And so I'm so thankful that we get to verse 6 because there's good news in verse 6. Verse 6 says, but he gives more grace. Wherefore, he said, God resists the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. These words remind me of what God said to the Apostle Paul, that my grace is sufficient for thee, for, in my, strength is, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. God's grace is sufficient for us. But it's not coming to the proud. If you're proud and you think you figured it all out and you're going to f- solve your own problems and you're going to find joy and satisfaction wherever you please, that you're going to be able to fix your life, it's just going to take one more self-help book. If that's you, the Bible says God resists you. The most powerful force in the universe, the most powerful person in the universe is against you. The creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, the judge is at odds with you. There's enmity in your relationship with him. That should terrify us. Why are we so proud? Why do we think so highly of ourselves? Why do we figure we're just going to fix it? We've proved the opposite over and over again. But he says, if you will humble yourself, you'll see the problem, you'll see your need, You'll see your failed attempts over and over again to satisfy yourself and to fix yourself. And you'll turn to him with empty hands. He will give you more grace. That's the promise here. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, it says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will hear their land. That's a verse we've heard so many times. But do we realize that we serve the same God that they served when these words were written? That if God's people will hear his voice and humble themselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways, do you realize that? That he gives more grace. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so here we have James Three steps to a better you. (laughs) Three steps to a better you. They're quite different than your average self-help manual you'll find out there, granted. Um, And they might not always make you feel good inside. 
but they will help, for real. The first step is be honest about the problem and its source. If someone asked you this question, what is wrong with the world, how would you answer? Well, it's the politicians, you know? They could just get it right. This whole world would be a better place. Or maybe it's just because we don't teach the Bible in schools anymore. That's the big problem. Maybe it's the liberal teachings about Jesus that have just taken out his miraculous and taken out the resurrection. Maybe that's the problem with the world, that we have these Christians that are um, masquerading as Christians, these people masquerading as Christians. They're changing the gospel. Maybe it's the prosperity gospel. I mean, there's so many things that are wrong with the world. So what is the problem with the world? The Times newspaper sent out an inquiry to a famous authors about 100 years ago and asked this very question, what is wrong with the world today? And so all these famous authors were supposed to write in with their understanding of what was wrong with the world. G.K. Chesterton wrote in, and he wrote, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. What is wrong with the world? Writing the the most famous, eloquent authors in the whole world, and you get this one-line answer. I am. G.K. Chesterton. Here's what's so amazing. We live in a day, as he did, where everyone else would respond to the letter this way. Dear sir, they are sincerely everyone else. We always see the problem in other people. We're so good at assessing other people's issues. And this is true no matter who you are, No matter what scenario you're in, no matter who you're talking about, no matter if it's work or whether we're talking about racism in the world, whether we're talking about um, activist groups that are fighting for one thing or the other, whether we're talking about terrorist groups, everybody sees everybody else as the problem. It's the rich because they're greedy. It's the poor because they're lazy. It's the white people because they're privileged. It's the black people because they're criminals. It's the men because they're chauvinistic. It's the women because they're feministic. It's, it's, you get it? Like, like everybody has a mantra and they all have this idea of what the problem is. If we just solve this problem, I'll be all right. It's not just the people in the news. If you ever are part of marriage counseling, or you get to sit in a marriage counseling, uh, what you'll find oftentimes is that the problem is always the other person. No matter what the situation is or what the problem is, it's always the other person. You probably found that in your own marriage. Um, you're raising children. The problem is always your kids. Like, I'm convinced that mine are broken. I mean, they're born defective or something. <laughs> I wonder if there's a return policy. <laughs> I'm kidding. Landon's asleep. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I actually, uh, my kids are better than I, than me, so I'm good. Um, but if, we're, if we get practical with the example, the last time you had a conflict, what was the problem? Was it them? Pretty sure it was them. Pretty sure that's what we want to say. Chesterton saw his flesh as the problem. He recognized his role in the problem. And so will you be as honest as he was? And will you say what James is calling you to say? The problem and the conflict in your life stems from your flesh that is waging war. The first thing is we need to recognize the problem and its source. The second thing is we need to recognize our ability to solve this problem on our own is zero. 
We have no ability to solve this problem by ourselves. We have tried to solve it. We've tried many ways. We've tried not lusting. Just cut that off. Stop that flesh. doesn't work. We've tried going without. I'm just going to deprive myself of all those things. Find other ways to, to lust. You find other things to want. We've tried fighting to get what we want. We've tried getting what we want. We end up just wanting more. We've tried asking for what we want, but we find we're asking selfishly and God won't answer those prayers. We've tried blaming everyone else and everything else for our problems. That still doesn't make them go away. And here's the sad fact. We have a problem. It's in each of us. We call it by a lot of names, human depravity, the original sin, sin nature, um, the curse of Cain. I mean, we can go on and on and talk about what the problem is. We recognize that there is something broken. There's a problem. And we need to see that it's a problem that we can't solve. According to James, we are adulterers and adulteresses, friends of the world, and at enmity with God. That is the state of our flesh. So we recognize our inability to solve the problem on our own. And finally, number three, humbly seek God and plead for grace. We have a God who loves us and who pursues us. Can you imagine that while you're living your Christian life and you have that spirit of God inside of you, that he just doesn't get up and leave sometimes? That he's there and he's there to stay. And even at times he's jealously yearning over your affections. He's frustrated, sad. Like that, that God seems to, to weep over our sin. And so here's a God who is with us all the time. And we're dragging him into all these things. And he, just, he doesn't get up and leave. He's there. He's promised to stay. And so we must humbly seek God and plead for grace. Do you know God is not looking for a cleaned up vessel to use? He's looking for a man or woman who acknowledges their filthiness and longs for his his cleansing. Augustine said, it was pride that changed angels into devils. It is humility that makes men as angels. So we need to be a humble people. What does that mean? What does it mean to be humble? Well, Jonathan Edwards explained it this way. He said, true humility is not an abject, groveling, self-despising spirit. It is but a right estimate of ourselves as God sees us. So if we're willing to admit what God already knows to be true, what the Bible says to be true about us, that we are sinners, we have a sin nature, that we can't fix ourselves, There's no no amount of reading and trying and effort is never going to fix us. That we're a broken people. That's what the Bible tells us that we are. And we're willing to go to God and say, God, I can't fix this. I need you. I need something outside of myself. I need salvation. If we'll go to God with that, he gives grace. But it's that humility and so it's, it's not just this, like, I'm terrible at everything. It's, it's God, I, I recognize I can't fix it, and I need you. The humble person does not come to God with qualifications or reservations. So you don't come to God and say, God, well, okay, I'll follow you if, if this and if this and if you fix this. And That's not it. Real, real humility is, is getting to the depth of, like, I've got nothing. 
I've got absolutely nothing. This, that's why this message, the gospel message, is it's so against our nature. Because we so badly want something. We want to cling to something. You talk to people who have, they're at the bottom of the barrel. They've, they've hit rock bottom. And they're still clinging to something that makes them good in themselves. And it's, it's sad. Why do we do that? Why don't we just honestly admit that we're a mess, we're a wreck, and that we need a Savior. We need God. We need to humbly seek God and plead for grace. Uh, one, of the, one of the most interesting things about this text is that commentators and theologians disagree on one of the fairly major points, and that is, who is James speaking to? Is he, in this text, speaking to those who are unsaved within the church, or is he speaking to those who are believers still struggling with their flesh? And there's a lot of great commentators that disagree on who he's speaking to. Is it the saved person, or is it the unsaved who's just pretending to be saved? And I feel like this is a part of our faith that we talk about a lot here, but that this text brings out again. James doesn't make it abundantly clear who he's talking to, partially because this is the message that, that we all need to hear. This, the gospel message is not the message that just saves the sinner. It's also the message that sanctifies the sinner. It's also the message that sanctifies the, the, the person who is now saved. And so what does the unbeliever need to do? Well, they need to recognize their sin. They need to recognize that they're a sinner. They need to recognize that the source of the problem is themselves, that they have sin nature, that they can't fix themselves, that they have no ability, that there's no hope without Christ. And then they need to repent and turn to him in faith and ask for grace, plead for grace. When they do that, he gives grace to the humble. Right? He saves that person. But what is the believer to do? What does the believer do when we still find ourselves struggling with our flesh? Maybe it's that we need to go again and say, God, I'm a wreck. I'm a sinner. I can't fix myself. I can't sanctify myself. I'm struggling here. I need your grace. I need your help. Maybe it's that same message that we need to hear, that when we do that, when we come to God humbly, even as, that, as his child, he gives grace. He gives strength. He gives help. I feel like a lot of times you go to church, and a lot of churches, it's about putting on a show. It's about all of us acting as well as we can. And here, James is abundantly honest. He says, where does the conflict come from? He recognizes that there is conflict. There's not one person he's talking to that doesn't have the conflict. So where does it come from? It comes from within. What's the solution? It's us being humble, not trying to fix it ourselves, but going to God and pleading for his grace. And if we do that, there's hope. Hope for someone like me. There's got to be hope for someone like you. Right? So let's, as his children, be willing to humble ourselves before our God and once again ask him for grace.